Due to COVID-19, this episode was recorded via Zoom. We apologize for the lowered sound quality. Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Program on Governance and Local Development at the University of Gothenburg and supported by the Swedish Research Council. I'm Ellen Lust, Director of the Program, and today we turn our attention to a very different form of local governance. We're going to focus on university governance and its relationship with government. Very specifically, we'll be at Boazic University, also known as Bosphorus University, located in Istanbul and considering the relationship with the Turkish government led by President Erdogan. Boazici has a long history of independent faculty-led governance, and as we'll hear, in the past years it has come under pressure from the Turkish national government. First, after Erdogan decided to appoint the rector directly rather than accept the ones elected by the faculty. Faculty, students, and alumni have been pushing back in a series of measures that recently earned it recognition from the American Middle East Studies Association. It's been a pleasure to speak with Mina Adair, a professor of political science and former chair of the department at the University of Boazici. She's also part of the collective leadership of the movement that has sought to regain control over university governance. We will discuss what's happened at Boazici, what it tells us about democratic islands in authoritarian contexts, and what it reveals about both the university and the Turkish government. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you do, please share, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. So, Mina, I want to first of all thank you for joining us today to talk about basically the ongoings at Boazici and particularly to think about it with regards to how we understand local governance. Most of the time, of course, we talk about local governance. We're thinking about how villages are governed or how urbanization takes place or, you know, maybe about migration and other issues. But I think that what's taking place at Boazici and has been for the last year or so is a really good example of thinking about local governance systems and what we might think of as almost as islands of democracy and the struggles and challenges they face within autocratized or, or autocracies. So I'd like to, to have us just discuss a little bit the situation in Boazici to understand the ways in which governance has taken place historically on the campus I and mean, then the challenges it's faced. Before we do so, I also want to congratulate you because I know that you and your colleagues just received the, what they call the CAFMINA Award, but the Committee on Academic Freedom for Middle East and North Africa from the Middle East Studies Association. And I think it really sort of is a testament to the hard work that you've done. And, and I want to congratulate all of you on that award. Well, thank you, Ellen. And thank you for this opportunity, uh, for giving me the opportunity to tell you about our story, our, our end of the story, at least uh, at Boazici, as a, in terms of both the university governance, but also as a sort of, um, uh, in some ways, a larger fight for you know, institutional autonomy, but also democratic governance which used to be, as you just nicely put it, used to be an island in itself. We used to call this place a sort of an, almost a haven in the midst of an increasingly autocratizing country. And we frankly thought we were untouchable because this was a public university that was educating 15,000 students every year. Not every year, but the total number of students, but every year like 4,000 students come in. And we thought we were doing a good job 
And that's why we were somewhat untouchable for, in terms of the kind of public good we generate for the society in general, because it is also the autocratizing government's children that wanted to come and attend as a public university and get good, good education, because there are tons of good universities. Some of them are, most of them are private. And one of the unique features of, of Boazici is that it's been a public university over the last 50 years. We were founded uh, in 1863 as a sort of a high school plus university. We were established by the Americans, by the way. It's an American school. But then the, the, the university component of this is then handed over in 1971, handed over to the Ministry of Education. And ever since then, there is a whole story here of trying to create a, a sort of synthesis of all the values and norms of local governance that has come and, and has become institutionalized in this place and then deal in, in this place as a local university governance mechanism and then negotiating this with the government ever since 1971, frankly. And we do see, we apparently do a very good job in sort of not only establishing Boazic University as a separate public university, but also creating its own autonomy vis-a-vis -vis the government. And because the governments were not necessarily mingling into higher education this much back then, we were able to create a sort of a Boazici style uh, governance in some ways. Then comes the coup, 1980 coup, and then we end up with an entirely different world with an appointment of an of a outside rector. So frankly, the kind of resistance that we're now having is not new. We had a similar episode after the coup, but this was after a military coup in the country. And then we got appointed a, a, a somebody from Istanbul Technical University who actually stayed in power as a rector for about 10 years or so. But even then, in, when we compare the 1980s to 2020, one, the horrible year that we've been having right now, even back then, the, the, the rector basically did not intervene into the academic appointments, did not intervene into the sort of the, the, uh, the mechanisms within the departments and the faculties. But Boazici is actually known for pushing for democratization after the sort of normalization of politics in Turkey and, you know, sort of the return of party politics. And so in 1990s, the university then is going to push for election of directors. And that's when this self-governance and, you know, sort of institutionalization of these local governance mechanisms is going to be more entrenched. And what we do, literally, we kind of do an illegal election and we try to negotiate this with the, the parties at the time and try to pass a sort of a higher education law that allows three candidates to be nominated and again presented to the president and the president with the higher education council. By the way, the higher education council is a colossal institution that tries to coordinate among now 200 universities, which is a mission impossible in itself, but it's a very top-down institutionalization that was horrific and still is very much highly criticized by all the advocates of university autonomy. So in 1990s, actually, Boazic University was a pioneer in establishing a rector election system, in nominating three candidates to the president, but in the process, pushing for the two other two candidates to say that if we do not get elected, we're not going to accept the appointment of, uh, of, by the president, which in effect meant we could choose our uh, rectors on a systematic basis. And this system actually worked wonderfully 
until 2016, when our rector, which was elected by 80%, was not appointed by the president Erdogan. And basically his um, vice director, her vice director, that was she was a woman president at the time, her vice director was basically uh, appointed. And then, you know, the university had to make this very difficult decision. Do we accept this? Do, because this is a violation of our election principles. But if not, he would be, you know, the president can now appoint anybody he likes, even from outside. So the, in the process of the following coup, the military coup attempt in 2016, and then the sort of the emergency powers that the president enjoyed, and then the change of the law that allows the president to basically accept individual applications from whatever you can, and then him appointing whoever he wants. Well, the term was up for our vice rector that was you know, grudgingly accepted into the university in 2016. The term was up in, at the end of 2020. And then the first thing we hear in 2nd of January was an appointment of somebody that is that has a PhD, presumably a PhD, which turned out to be plagiarized later on, but who had absolutely no experience at Boazici to be appointed from a top-down fashion. And so this, this resistance has been going on since January 2021. Throughout this whole process, ever since 1971, ever since this, this university has been founded, there's been a sort of a, a laborious process of crafting institutions and making sure those institutions work properly and collectively. So the University Senate has been working properly since all the way to 2020, even though the appointed the vice rector back in 2016 was not somebody we elected. He had made a commitment that he's not going to override any of the decisions of the Senate and override any of the decisions of the University Executive Council that, that he will uh, you know, respect all the decisions of the commissions. There are 81 commissions that make decisions at different levels of the university. And that's you know, how we've been being governed until 2021 January. And, and that is something that has been now systematically being demolished by this new rector. And then we started protesting, going back into our own resistance, we started protesting in very different ways. One of the most symbolic portion of our resistance is to go there in the campus in front of the rector's building at 12.15 every single working day, turn our backs and then have 15 minutes of silence vigil, uh, protesting the, the existence of somebody that we do not recognize as a legitimate director. And we've been doing that beautifully uh, since January 2nd. And then he did, the president ended up withdrawing it, you know, taking him from power, which was much to our surprise, had no, never happened before. This was after a full six months, back in end of uh, June, beginning of July. But unfortunately, unfortunately, he ended up in reappointing the vice rector he would, that he was working with, that this um, top-down rector was working with, as, in, as our new rector. In the meantime, we had also had a vote of confidence for this appointed rector already, and all the faculty members had actually given 95% of no confidence vote to this vice rector, now new rector person, who basically ignored the fact that he's not wanted in the campus as a rector, and then moved on to assume the power since August.
ever since then, we're being, you know, sort of he's been escalating the sort of scrutiny, escalating different strategies to really securitize the campus, bring in the, the civilian police, as we call them, the, you know, police in civilian clothes that are supposed to survey and, you know, create a surveillance mechanism in the campus, in effect, turning the campus into a prison. And, you know, having our students arrested, filing complaints with the prosecutor's office uh, against the students, filing complaints against professors to make sure that they are somehow removed from office, arbitrarily completing contracts of uh, some of the professors without ever regard to the, the decisions, department decisions or faculty decisions. So every single principle of local governance that we have established over the long years of Senate, University, Executive Council, as I said, and all these commissions, he has violated every single rule. He's not even consulting, in most cases, the decision-making process. I think I just took off and, and then just <laughs> went nonstop, sorry. sorry no, it's that. absolutely great. I, I just want to sort of step back for a minute and make sure that people understand really kind of the position and nature of Boazici, or what sometimes people call Bosphorus University, right? Because you mentioned it very briefly. I mean, it is a kind of a medium-sized university, right? About 16,000 students. But I think what might be missing for people who don't necessarily know the university and don't necessarily know Turkish higher education is really the extent to which this is a public university that's considered to be the very top university, or at least in my view is the very top university. I mean, it's an incredibly important and, and influential institution. And maybe if you can just give us a little bit more about Boazici and the nature of the university, and therefore also a little bit about why that might be in conflict for Erdogan, I think that would help people to, to be able to understand why suddenly it comes under such attack. Actually, this is a great question because it, it is puzzling, and this was puzzling to all of us as well. You know, why all of a sudden we became the target? And in some ways, AKP has been, and Erdogan has been in power for a very long time. And, and Bozici, as I said, have navigated these rough waters by saying, look, yes, this is a, by the way, the, the, the language of instruction here is in English. That gives the university a recognition, an international recognition. But also it is one of the best um, universities, primarily because we get the best students. They all go through a national entrance exam because it is public, in sharp contrast to other private universities for which you have to pay a lot of money. That also creates constraints in terms of how much scholarship you can give. Obviously, the students you provide scholarship is wonderful, but the students that are paying in are not going to be as qualified, or at least will be slightly different. In our case, because we are public and the, the tuition is almost zero, these students are, I must say, the brightest of the brightest. And all we have to do is to give them a very good education, and that's why they get accepted into exceptional schools across the world. The university is very well regarded internationally precisely because of the quality of the education, but also the quality of student body, which gives us an enormous comparative edge. And as I said, you know, as you suggested as well, this has given us an, a sort of an immunity for some time for, you know, we're doing our job very well and they wouldn't want to touch an institution that's minding their own business, by the way. We're not necessarily known as politically engaging university as well. We're too foreign for it. Eventually, though, as the degrees of autocratization in the country 
started escalating, especially after the coup attempt in 2016 and, you know, sort of emergency decrees and the shift in the politics of Turkey where AKP stopped, you know, trying to solve the Kurdish problem, but really started aligning with the nationalists and adopted a very extreme nationalist discourse of everything Western becoming um, a threat. Well, this is the too Western of an institution for Erdogan, too Westernized and not, I mean, this is his wording, you are not national enough, you're not local enough, and you're basically some kind of a missionary school that is trying to sell Turkey to the West. That is the accusation or the packaging we started getting. And this was this kind of undercurrent was always there. I mean, it's not new, but, you know, obviously this became, as he centralized more and more power, as the executive aggrandizement actually became more and more visible, you could see him, you know, adopting this kind of a language and then targeting the institution. And that is why I think initially it was enough to appoint a slightly conservative vice rector to manage the university, but as eventually as he became more powerful, basically, well, we want to now invade. Literally, I now, that is why everybody, all the members of the faculty, frankly, see this as a political invasion project, you know, as a top-down mechanism, which is kind of sad because the moment you invade the institution, it's no longer going to be the institution <laughs> that you kind of were hoping that you would usurp the reputation and, and its own international social capital, if you will. That is going to be automatically gone. The institution will evaporate. And that is the reason why we resist so vehemently across a huge majority of faculty members, some of which are very active, some of which are not, but we know that they're also opposing because the reason why we know everybody's opposing is that he's unable to find anybody to help him out in governing the university. And he needs to do everything by himself he has two assistants, two vice rectors, but he's not able to find a third. And in, in most cases, he refuses to appoint the, the deans for a very long time. We elect the deans as well and then send it to the Higher Education Council. And the Higher Education Council usually appoints the ones that we've elected. We didn't run into those problems before, but now, for example, the deans uh, for the engineering faculty we made the election, the engineers voted, and we sent it up to Higher Education Council. They're unable to appoint. And that's why a vice rector is now also the dean of the engineering school. I mean, in other words, they're overstretching the three people, which is very much like a microcosm of the, of the executive branch in Turkey. Right now in AKP and Erdogan, you know, the two or three people are now making all the decisions that we used to make collectively across various commissions and various different hierarchies, right? You deliberate at very different levels. You want to hire somebody, you decide at the departmental level, goes to the faculty, then goes into the university executive council, gets deliberated there as well. And then you get, it means you, there are layers of collective decision-making that has been established over those years. And he's just not interested, <laughs> not interested at all. In the midst of all of this, by the way, they're also setting up brand new faculties, the law school and the law, uh, school of communication. Undergraduate, by the way, and we already are physically overflown with with number of high number of students. And physically, we cannot take any more, but they don't care. The, there is no need education-wise for a new law school or a communication school. There are enough 
faculties existing across the existing universities. So there's absolutely no logic here. And the logic is obviously political and kadraman. They want to appoint professors that may or may not be qualified, and, and they're often not qualified. And the idea here is to change the composition of the, the, the professors and the faculty members. And that is the sad commentary. The commentary in the sense that you're also undermining the, uh, the meritocratic system that has been part of this local governance. The reason why everybody is so committed to, to governing this place properly is because we want to keep it as a center of excellence. We want to make sure that there, there is an academic standards are guarded across the board and the collective decision-making actually uh, ensures that. Nobody can bring in nepotistically a faculty member that they love or care or use their personal networks. No, the institutions will have to work layer by layer. And that's why you want to build good local institutions, right? I mean, so that you can basically eliminate all those kind of nepotistic or clientelistic ties and, and really establish a meritocratic system. And we really take pride in having done that to a large extent. Yet, was it perfect? Obviously not. But those commissions and those deliberative mechanisms actually limited the powers of the rector as well. And all the rectors that were appointed actually legally had enormous powers. The law basically gave them a lot of power, but we knew that in the university, in Bohazit University, those rectors will never be able to exercise them. And they would proudly say that. I will not be able to pass this to executive council. I'm sorry. So they knew the constraints, right? It's sort of the balance of power concept was very much embedded in the way this place was governed. But right now, you have a rector that has been vetoed literally with a no confidence vote of 95%. And he basically says, well, the president chose me and I'm entitled and I'm going to do whatever I want. And he's um, undersigning scandalous decisions one after the other. And we keep on protesting and different kinds of protests are emerging in the process. Students are doing their own version of protest, but I'll be happy to talk about the strategies of resistance if you like as well. Yeah, I want to come to that. I actually wanted to ask you a little bit more about the faculty composition and the changes in that, right? So it's essentially two questions. One is the question of how do we understand the current faculty, right? And you mentioned the fact that you have very high caliber students. I know for political science that, you know, they go to Harvard, they go to MIT, they go to very top universities, do their PhDs, and many come back. So, I mean, another thing that's very unique, I think, about Boazici is the extent to which there's a great deal of pride among the faculty and a real concern for the institution. I'm wondering if people would say that it's also a very sort of secular left-leaning institution. In other words, if you were the AKP or your Erdogan, would you actually say, okay, one reason I need to finally rein them in is because they are fundamentally, you call the anti-nationalist or not nationalist enough, but they're also fundamentally sort of more secular than he wants. And so that's part of communications and law, if you think about it, are two areas which are also quite sensitive areas. So how do we understand the perspective of the regime with regards to the university and particularly with regards to the faculty? Excellent point. The accusation has always been that the, even though the students are incredibly diverse, and they are, they come from very different backgrounds and there are different places, that the faculty is a little bit too closed, too closed in terms of its hiring his own kind or her own kind, which uh, frankly might be correct. 
I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't disagree with that to that extent. That's the sort of the, to them, this was a, a form of elitism, right? That you're only hiring your own kind. But frankly, this also has to do with the, the pool of applicants because we have to do a public call for these positions. We have to make sure that everybody applies. I don't know, I can't speak obviously for all the departments, but there is, you know, there is no political litmus test in terms of hiring. You just have to be very good in what you're doing. So I basically do not buy into that kind of ex- accusation of deliberately choosing secular candidates because we really can't afford that. The ones that is out, as you would be disparaged as an institution, you would lose your legitimacy. But the accusation also comes from the fact that back in 2016, there was also a petition, as you might remember, for that the academics have signed for protesting the, the state handling of the Kurdish problem and the use of violence, excessive use of violence in, in the southern part of the country. The academics have signed this petition for peace, you know, stop the, the, those kind of uh, practices. And of course, there was a whole criminalization, a series of criminalization of this petition, which was a huge blow on freedom of expression. But a a lot of faculty members, including myself, had to be tried for supporting terrorism or for cursing the state. No, not cursing, um, using foul language against the state, Mm -hmm. something like the the sort of, you're not- Denigrating the state. Denigrating the state, there we go. That's the word I was looking at. So, um, So yes, we got all tried, but then we all were acquitted from that. Thankfully, which was already a rational process to begin with, but there are the Wazich the University was one of the few institutions where there was a 70 faculty members, a huge number in comparison to the others. The 70 faculty members had undersigned this, and the rector that ended up in not being appointed by the, by the president, the rector basically said, I'm not filing any investigation against those academics. You know, so once the rector basically refuses to do that, you can't move forward. Obviously, you can't criminalize this any further. And that became a major issue. And that was one of the reasons why Erdogan did not want to appoint that particular rector to begin with. Yes. So yes, the reputation or the packaging was this is not only secular, which runs across all the faculties, but also, at least in social sciences, is very left-leaning, sort of is, is very pro-Kurdish, and that's simply not acceptable. So in that sense, that was the, the sort of, the, again, that was part of the packaging that the university started getting at that point. And, and, and again, going back into this old elitism, you know, sort of you see this kind of rhetoric all the time in terms of both the, the administration itself, the, politi- you know, the politicians themselves, but also even with the people that are now using this kind of government's power, so to speak, you know, sort of that somehow they are the people you sometimes wonder, am I a rare bird? I'm not a people. <laughs> it's like, it's like, but, but this whole kind of this sort of populist streak is so strong. In, and this whole anti-intellectual, anti-academics sentiment is all gets intertwined with this kind of a populist appeal, which is very dangerous, right? But also an entire higher education problem for the country because the quality of education is no longer the issue here, but whether or not you, are, you, you fill into this kind of social engineering project that they envision. The definition of an academic, we are by definition are in the opposition, right? We are supposed to be critical of powers that be or whatever they're doing. We're supposed to be, you know, so thinking about reassessing what they're doing all the time. But to them, this was all 
streamlining or just sort of giving them a lesson or making sure that they also uh, become subject to our own power. And I think that's that's the sad commentary in some ways, the sort of the, the repackaging the university as an elitist institution that have no connection with the pe people. By the way, as I said, I wanna underscore, we have such students from all over the country coming in on a meritocratic basis. And so the fact that this is a public university offering a quality education, this is the most nationalist project that you can actually imagine when you think about it. And that is, which is why it is, a, it is such an incredible uh, decimation of our institution as such. And I don't take it, I don't accept it at all. This is what, if, if I were to present <laughs> one, one you know, sort of packaging here, the other packagings has been around for quite some time. But the idea of, of us somehow doing public damage or brainwashing students that are too pro-Western or too secular or too liberal, frankly, because we are also priding ourselves in, in giving a liberal education. So this is where there are student clubs for LGBTQ activities. This is you know, gender issues. You know, this is a place where everybody, but every student can fulfill who they can, who they want to be. And this is our function as a university, right? But no, this, you know, they tried to criminalize that student uh, club. That was one of the missions, the primary missions of the, of the uh, rector when he got pointed, he banned the student activities for the LGBTQ students. Um, they're also, you know, were the ones targeted by the police. And so, yeah, lots of othering, lots of exclusionary language, lots of packaging, unfortunately. Yeah, and in many ways, some of the things that you're pointing to are actually not just about Turkey, right? We see these more globally, kind of the demonization and the extent to which academics are seen as elite, out of touch, too liberal is some kind of a more global issue at the moment. You promised to tell us a bit more about how the reaction, how people are mobilizing. You mentioned, of course, the daily protests that take place, um, but if you can give us a bit more of an understanding of the different what we might think of the repertoires of contestation, right, that have developed and, and a little bit also about how that governance itself is taking place, which I think is quite interesting. Ah, uh, yes, we have our own commissions. <laughs> so part of this is the visuals, which are basically, you know, sort of totally on a voluntary basis. We put our ropes every more, every noon. It's become a symbolic gesture now and it's been like four seasons now rainy uh, <laughs> sort of snowing and uh, sunshine and incredibly hot weather we've done this on, on our system so that's the sort of the symbolic performance part of this in fact but what we do is we deliberate deliberate endlessly every sunday on zoom with the number of faculty members attending range from 100 to 300, depending on the urgency of the issue, but minimum, basically always a hundred people would, would come out. And by the way, we have like 460 or so full faculty members. If you put the other part times and everything, it will all go up to 650 or so. But in any case, what we do is we deliberate and we basically go through what has happened that week, what has happened in the Senate meeting, and the University Executive Council. One of the things I have to basically underscore though is that the Senate members, the ones that we've elected, because we elect, you know, so this, the Senate is composed of the deans, the, the faculty representatives that we also elect, and some of the institute, the heads of the institutes. So they've been trying to grab the majority there from the very beginning. And that is again, you know, because that would, that would give them a rubber stamp uh, institutional dynamics, but the, the, the senators 
have literally have adopted a sort of a united defensive mode, if you will, by not only telling them how things are done, you can't just give you one example. You can't just come up with, with their own class program, which is what they try to do, creating a huge mess, by the way, in the process, because these class programs are, you know, departments submit this into the registration office, they get coordinated, and then approved by the Senate, right? There's a whole due process that has to be done. And they try to do this by themselves, again, because they're unhappy with this horizontal organization, as I suggested. Well, uh, it was a big mess, but then, you know, so they tried to circumvent the Senate. They tried to capture the Senate in many different ways. And in many, in many occasions, they actually started doing double voting. In other words, director votes as director, but then he temporarily, he appoints himself as the head of the Social Science Institute and tries to vote with a double vote. I mean, it was ridiculous. In any case, though, so I have to congratulate those people in the Senate and the executive, University Executive Council, same thing. They meet every week for the daily affairs. They too have basically tried to explain how things are done in our university, how, the, how we govern, how we make decisions. So it's not that we didn't try. It's not that we didn't try to teach, but the, there was absolutely no interest in, in maintaining these norms. And that's the sad commentary, in fact, and that's the sort of the top-downness of it. So in any case, the kind of administrative positions our deans, our elected senators have done an incredible job at that level to maintain, or at least slow down the damage, frankly, and have basically tried to explain how things are done. That's one level of resistance. The other, we basically started filing suits against all the illegalities. Um, So we have now a court case against the appointments, because the appointments, again, are in direct violation of a constitutional article on the um, um, academic autonomy. So we used that particular legal channel to uh, the protest institution of the appointments of both rectors, the, the first one and the second one. Then we filed a suit against the establishment of the law school and the communication school. Again, too, this was an overnight degree. I mean, boom, one night, the president decides, wakes up that morning and says, I'm going to have a law school at Pozic. That's not how things <laughs> should be done, right? Um, so we have basically legal channels, using the legal means to challenge the authority, the legitimacy of those kind of appointments. In the worst part of the this, this scenario, obviously, there's, uh, there's a position of general secretary, which is the head of the entire administrative appointments. And that's where they appointed somebody that is from outside, that is apparently very close to Erdogan. And so he almost operates like a clone of Erdogan here as a political apparatchik, if you will, in the campus, basically using the private security guards in the campus to harass the students, to to criminalize them, literally taking their pictures. So this has been a very sad commentary on both the way these things are done. You know, they bring in the police every time the students try to uh, have a protest. They call in literally armored police into the campus, which is something we've never seen before. And the rectors never allowed the police to come in, you know, because you need, the rector needs to say yes for the police officers to any police to come into the campus. But right now you go out, you walk, everything is full of police, hyper-masculine police presence is very, very unfortunately present here. So we kind of protested all of that in the process. So what we do, if you see any irregularity or illegality on the part of the behavior of the 
of the private security guards. We also filed suit against them. We filed, oh, in the meantime, we also de try to delegitimize those appointments. We bring them into the, the parliament as a sort of ask questions in the parliament, you know, why, in what basis were this appointment made. We also try to delegitimize by basically showing that most of these people are unqualified. We proved, for example, as I said before, that the, the first rector's, most of his academic work is plagiarized. This general secretary got appointed from outside. It's also proven that, by the way, I forgot to mention our alumni, who was incredibly involved in us in, in this work. Alumni did create a file and found out that this general secretary, this horrific general secretary, is also plagiarized his thesis and his um, doctoral work. So we kind of try to get this out as well, you know, that these are not meritocratic people that are meritocratically appointed here. They have political motivations. And the last example of this, they now refused to appoint the head of the Social Science Institute that we elected, appointed somebody from Bakırca University, which we've never heard. I've never heard of this university before. In any case, this was a, a treasury law, what is it called, a financial law, lawyer that had nothing to do with the social sciences and we don't even know whether he knows English but he's now the head of the social science institute and he apparently I'm told basically assumed power with a bodyguard <laughs> and started sitting in his office with a bodyguard I mean that's the kind of this extent of cruelty or the the vulgarity of of this kind of occupying power but in any case going back into our resistance strategies the legal channels we filed, I mean, there are so many lawsuits that, that I, I can't even count right now. Also, what we do is we try to use the media and also try to have them surface their absurdity. One of the things that, that happened, for example, is that he arbitrarily decided that not only he's going to end the contract, labor contract of one of our full-time faculty and some of the fine arts courses, for a physics professor, he's a physics professor, apparently fine arts are all dispensable. So he kind of closed down, I mean, this is the anti-liberal education strand that comes in anyway. So he not only did that, but also said these people are not gonna come into the campus. So this is again, part of the whole securitization. So he gave a list apparently to the security, private security personnel on the gates to the, not to allow these people in, which is unacceptable. This is a public university. Anybody should be allowed to come in. And unless you're a criminal, right? So we tried different ways. We tried to invite him to different courses, didn't work. And what happened last week was we had organized a panel, an academic panel on migration, precarity, and art. And one of the, the people that we invited uh, was this documentary filmmaker who also has had a documentary film on migration, on Turkish migrants in Kreuzberg in, in Berlin. And, and we wanted to have this panel with the migration experts followed by this film. And this was a nicely put together program with two research centers and three departments all collaborating and inviting people. In any case, we got this message from the public relations department saying the rector has not found it suitable for these two people that is in your panel to come in, but the others are suitable. This is academic censorship. You know, if you are not in a position, this is like three departments and two centers have decided to organize a panel 
And you, all you should be doing as a lecturer is to facilitate that, right? Period. But again, the kind of personalization, the personal targeting, the kind of vendetta, the kind of, I am the one, the ultimate decision maker, and you can't do this. That style of governance, which is really a replica, unfortunately, of the kind of autocratic regime we're living in, is now come down to visit us. And what we do is we basically, we went viral with that. We went public with the kind of, this is censorship. This is not acceptable. You can't get to decide who's going to come in. The, the most recent event, again, that we kind of went with the viral with the social media was, uh, was they refused to let uh, the, the dean of one of the other universities in Istanbul, the dean, <laughs> to come in from the campus, uh, he, also a former alumni. And he basically, again, he went viral with that as well. So they make mistakes. We try to push them into making more mistakes and then basically share that with the public uh, as much as possible. And, and literally show that they are unable to govern this university and this university should not be governed in this way anyway. The students are also very involved, but they also are, are kind of scared now because what he has systematically done is to give their names to the prosecutors and the prosecutors then find some sort of a packaging for them to put them either in jail. There are two of them that are now in jail for more than 50 days, half of which were actually in solitary confinement for, for jumping on top of his car. That was like, yes, public damage, public property damage, but solitary confinement with no court case that is still being you know, filed against them. This becomes a deterrence mechanism. If you ever protest, I'm going to put you in jail. So excessive criminalization is what they're trying to do right now. And we try to deal with that as well. But it's not going to work because the law basically says peaceful protest is a constitutional right. <laughs> so but See, um, that's what's interesting. And I want to lift it back. So on the one hand, we have this, what started as almost an island of democracy and, and autocracy, but it also, I think, tells us something else about the regime more broadly, right? And the the interesting tensions in the Turkish regime, which you wouldn't find in some of the other autocracies around the region, right? That you can credibly use the media and you can use the courts in other systems or elements of the system. I'd like you to end with a little bit of thinking on what do you think this tells us now, not necessarily just about how Boazici is governed and how it pushes back, but also about the Turkish space more broadly at the moment and what we might expect? I do have to underscore that the reason why this resistance was possible even was because we are in a period of, I don't know how long it will take, but it's an autocratic decline. In other words, this is an autocratic regime that is after 20 years, I mean, 19 plus, this is going now into the 20th year, is now no longer feeling the kind of overconfidence and legitimacy that they once enjoyed. And all the numbers, public opinion numbers, are basically showing that, that they're not doing a good job, that they're losing in terms of popularity. And of course, this is a country that where there's a, a genuine financial crisis. We're in the midst of an economic crisis. So, and there is an enormous detachment. That detachment basically, for the first time, actually, because Erdogan has always, and RKP has always prided itself as being a people's party in touch with people's needs and addressing the people's need. And so I think staying in power and staying so isolated in, a, in a, an ivory tower in some ways 
they have become elitist in ways that are quite ironically completely detached from the day-to-day -day concerns of the population. So there is a sense here that we are in this period of autocratic decline. The question is, when is there going to be an election? If an election is somehow pushed onto this government, then we're going to be talking about an entirely different process and, and an entirely more accelerated resistance on many different fronts. But for now, because they also feel that decline, I think they're upping their hand before they leave, which is why they, this gets more tough and tough as we go along. But the, there are genuine signs here, genuine signs in terms of the packaging, the media packaging no longer working because it looks and comes across as too packaged. Everything becomes a sort of a national threat. Everybody becomes a terrorist. So I think there's an overuse and abuse of these concepts now that even the sort of the pro AKP voters are saying, look, I don't care who these people are. I just want to have a decent life or a sort of peaceful life. So I think there's too much agitation, too much criminalization, not allowing the head of the major opposition party into Turkish Statistics Institute. I mean, this is the same day we were going through the censorship. Erdogan was busy not allowing the opposition party to, I mean, why was the opposition party there? Because they were afraid or they were trying to manifest the fact that the Turkish Statistics Institute manipulate the inflation numbers, which will then influence the minimum wage negotiations. And I think the masks are off. You know, I mean, it kind of reminds me of Brezhnev and Brezhnev's last year. Your symbolic power is no longer working or packaging is no longer working. And you can see this kind of in the legal pathways in the judiciary system, because yes, the judiciary is extremely politicized. You know, the moment we got this plagiarism case, for example, out about the general secretary, they got a ruling saying this is personal offense. It's a fact. We'll just file the complaint, you know, with the huge files of documents that would prove that, right? But it was a personal offense. And then they got a media ban on this, you know, you know not releasing some news about his plagiarism. So they can still do these kind of irregular uh, things. I mean, the courts are still in violation of the European Court of Human Rights decisions on Osman Kavala, Demirtas, right? These are, they're still in jail. So, but more and more, the country is becoming much like a rogue state. I don't necessarily like that literature, but meaning that now even the European Council basically comes out and says, well, look, it's not about, say, rendering 10 of your diplomats persona non grata, but it is if you don't follow the Supreme Court of Human Rights, which you've undersigned that you're going to be committed to, if you're not following this through, we're going to be thinking about you know, some sanctions, right? Or maybe get you out of the European Council. So I think the country is in the brink of that kind of sort of polarization is almost imploding at this point. And there are, again, there are signs of that in judiciary. There are signs of this in, in sort of the kind of irrational corners that they find themselves in, frankly, not allowing a professor to come into a country, to, to campus because he's tweeted. He's tweeted he wants to come and join the protest. So now they're going to try to criminalize our own peaceful vigil. I think that would be the next step. But even again, you know, the, how irrational is that? All we're doing is we put our ropes and we turn our backs and we just simply want to tell them that we don't want to work with you. We don't want you here. Again, you know, it's, I think the absurdity of it, as the absurdity increases and as judiciary and the bureaucracy feels a little uncomfortable about, hmm, things might change. 
So I better at least play by the rules so that I won't be liable afterwards. That signaling I think is taking on. And I think that's why we're, we still can keep on going. Otherwise it's, it is very easy to criminalize us as well and then put us, put us all in jail and, and silence us. But, but I think, and, and that still might happen, mind you, um, but, um, but I think the absurdity is increasing as we speak and it's signaling for this kind of autocratic regimes. Hardship is a little too evident right now, which gives us sort of a, a narrow room for continuing resistance. Mind you, the sadness of it all is that other universities, even though we know that they are behind us, are much more silent than us. Our luck has been the enormous overwhelming majority of the faculty members staying by and, and, and staying in solidarity with one another. That's a rare entity in some ways because in other universities where they tried to do this were not the, the first and the last, they, they were able to divide up, divide up the faculty. And then once you divide up the faculty, then you get take over the Senate you take the university, uh, university executive council and then nobody has the audacity to, to protest. In our case, it was the sort of the enormous amount of uh, faculty, as you suggested, has, has already either had a sort of undergraduate education or some sort of an attachment to this institution and see this more like a home rather than just a university or work that workplace that you go in. It's that ownership, this maximum degree of ownership of the institution as such that has created a remarkable form of resistance, I think. And that's why I think we got the award, uh, because, that's a, I, because that is such a rare entity in that sense, you know, to get that kind of significant majority, so to speak, to get this mobilized. Because, you know, so not everybody can come in every day, but we at least get like 30, 35 people every day. On Friday, every Friday, we make sure that we're very crowded. And that's when the alumni starts coming on Fridays as well. So. It's hard, it's incredibly hard, but we maintain the upbeat, uh, upbeat spirit with the expectation that we resist and if we kind of survive this, there is gonna be an end at the end of the tunnel. But we're fully aware that there has to be change at the macro level for the university governance to, to change as well. And that's why there is a whole expectation about uh, change at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Yeah. No, I think, like you said, it's a very special place, right? I mean, you and your colleagues have an enormous amount of solidarity and have done a great job. I think it's being built in some ways on the collective governance. It's not just about the attachment to it, but the experience of collective governance that has then led to being able also to sustain that even um, as you're essentially under attack. So I wish all of you all the best. So for you and your colleagues and the students, but also for Turkey more generally as you move forward. Thank Thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell tell you the story. Thank you. See ya.